Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to the Reformation Podcast Part 2. In our last podcast, we set the stage for what life was like in Europe in the late 1400s and early 1500s, because to understand the power of the church during that time, it is important to understand the social and economic conditions of the people. And while there were some exciting inventions going on, like Leonardo da Vinci's development of the first parachute in 1485, his design of the first flying machine in 1492, and perhaps the most exciting, whiskey was invented in Scotland in 1494. But for the average person living in Europe during the late 1400s and early 1500s, life was pretty bleak. As the author Kittleson that I will quote throughout this podcast, as he puts it, the religion practiced by the people of the 16th century, which is the 1500s, was very much like the world in which they lived. They struggled to gain spiritual security just as in their daily lives they struggled to achieve material security. As we discussed before, During the Middle Ages, salvation was seen as something to be earned, which meant that each person believed they had to do work to be saved and go to heaven. Saints and relics were part of their everyday life and were prayed to in order to help people atone for their sins. There was little separation from church life and private life. And officially, there was no separation between church and state. The Pope at this point was more powerful than the emperor because the Pope, it was believed, could condemn you to hell. And ultimately, he was the one who could forgive sins. Death was used as a threat and a visual deterrent for avoiding sin. Of course, if you've ever seen medieval art, you know what I'm talking about. The theme used in art was often what's called the dance of the dead. Yeah. Think of the skeleton, the Grim Reaper, and then you have a pretty good idea of what they considered to be art back then. Fire and brimstone were the themes repeated in every church week. Everyone knew what fiery hell awaited them if they did not do what was in their power to earn salvation. Well, what possible power could these poor people have to avoid hell and damnation? This was the great paralyzing fear. This is what is called works-based theology. And this becomes a major contention for Martin Luther and prompts him to go back to Scripture. Striving for salvation led to many to purchase indulgences. Now, remember, indulgences were printed and sold to poor souls who thought that purchasing them would help reduce their time in purgatory. They were pretty convinced they were going to go straight to heaven. But if they could just reduce their time in purgatory, that holding tank, well, that was the goal. 
as you can well imagine, many would do whatever they could to avoid the wrath of God and the gates of hell. This is really going to become the cornerstone of Luther's pursuit of truth. Luther himself fell victim to torturing himself physically and emotionally in order to be seen as worthy for salvation. Luther knew human beings are weak and prone to sin and error and could honestly never in a million years offer anything of themselves that could possibly be pleasing to a righteous God. By the way, the righteous God who insists on absolute obedience. And Luther knew, honestly, that behind every good deed was a hidden agenda of how to possibly earn favor with God and not about how to love thy neighbor. So Luther literally tortured himself with the knowledge that love of self, honestly, was behind every good deed. So this whole idea of care for souls became Luther's personal pilgrimage for truth. So first Luther turns to what he knows. He turns to the Catholic Church and his teachers. Now the theology of the day, how he was taught, it taught that the church kind of mediated the grace of Jesus Christ. So in other words, human initiative, they acknowledged it's not enough. But when added to the grace received through the sacraments, then you could in partnership be pleasing to God. So basically this theology became kind of a contract between man and God. This meant that as Christians, we do play an active role in our salvation. This also meant that Christians can earn the grace of God by trying really hard and doing their best. So, since the teachers taught this, the preachers preached this, and the people believed it, good enough is good enough, and God will do the rest. Can you hear a potential problem here? Salvation was becoming a prize that had to be won at least in part by our own worldly efforts. Well, this would require constant vigilance, right? Not to mention a lot of worry. Am I doing enough? What if God doesn't like my best? What if my good enough isn't good enough? So Luther was not the only theologian at the time who was really wrestling with this idea that we all had to work to achieve salvation. The solution, it was believed, was to be found in confession and then penance and then the mass. So here's the problem, and this is what Martin Luther said. He said that confessing sins actually became a sinful act in itself because you were confessing sin not because you were like really, truly sorry, but because you were really, truly scared. The sincerity of the confession and the subsequent penance after the confession weren't truly honest and sincere. So Luther and pretty much everybody else found no peace in this. 
And so if monks and priests couldn't find peace, how could the average person, how could the average person possibly satisfy God? The very first thing Luther did was he went to his Bible. And what he discovered completely changed his life and eventually the life of the church. Luther discovered that the road to salvation had nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ. Faith alone, in Christ alone, through Scripture alone. So by looking at the letter to the Romans, Luther saw that the Apostle Paul made it really clear that those who presumptuously thought that they could somehow come to God apart from Christ were sorely mistaken. Salvation and the gift of faith were not one-time events, but an ongoing, never-ending process. Well, this understanding was life-changing. It took the focus off self and it placed it onto Christ. The defense for all our sin was Christ. As the author Kittleson explains in his book, Luther the Reformer, he says, Luther found in scripture that Christ is the righteous one. And this is our defense. He died for our sin. He made me righteous. And he made my sin his sin. And if my sin is his sin, then I don't have sin. I am set free. Human effort, human good works, indulgences had no part in salvation. Holy moly, this was a reformation. So we're going to unpack how this revelation is going to turn the church on its head. All those monks who were living in poverty, trying to earn God's favor, all the personal denial, the spiritual exercises, the fasting, the indulgences, none of this led to righteousness. Only the gospel, only the good news of Christ died for you and your sins are forgiven. It changed everything. He learned that we are sinners and we are convicted of our sin by the law and we are given faith by hearing the gospel. The purpose of all the commandments which people strive to obey was to drive Christians to Christ because without Christ they remain dead in their sin, unable to obey the law. Luther now saw that as our lives as Christians, there was going to be this constant state of tension. Sinner and saint. We can't stop being human. In fact, Luther realizes that admitting our sinful nature and the fact that we can do nothing apart from Christ actually makes us more human. Instead of us trying to be like God or in some kind of contract with God where we do a little and then he does a little and together we can save ourselves. Luther's actually quoted as saying, 
We are all born and die in iniquity, unrighteousness. We are just solely by what the merciful God imputes to us through faith in his word. Salvation starts where we acknowledge we are sinful. So this is where things start to unravel. Luther and many others, including many European princes, started to be concerned about the proliferation of indulgences. In the early 1500s, the papacy in Rome was honestly in deep financial doo-doo. Pope Leo X, well, he actually wants to kind of outdo all the other crowned heads of Europe. And so his goal is to complete St. Peter's Cathedral. Honestly, if you've ever seen it, it's a remarkable, stunning accomplishment. So, in order to pay for St. Peter's Cathedral, there were some side deals with some German princes, namely a prince named Albert. And this is so funny. He is described as being soft-skinned, pudgy, with scarcely a beard. Yeah, that was kind of a bad thing back then. So a deal's drawn up to help Albert print some land, and then he borrowed money from a German bank, so the deal is to pay the German bank back and to help bankroll the cathedral. So the Pope is part of this deal. A guy by the name of Tetzel, T-E-T-Z-E-L, is now tasked by the Pope to make these indulgences sound super powerful in purchasing salvation. He needs to go around the kingdom and peddle some indulgences. Okay, it's Halloween, 1517, and it's about to go down. Tetzel's in Wittenberg, and so was a professor by the name of Martin Luther. Luther is posting in Latin what is now called the 95 Theses. And he's hammering them on the door. And basically, these are statements against the sale of indulgences. And word travels fast. These theses are quickly translated into German. And then a bunch of cartoons circulate. Isn't that funny? Cartoons of 1517. So anyway, uh, because of this, um, Tetzel, as he's going around, more people start to hear about Martin Luther and crowds start heckling Tetzel. And so ultimately, his mission is a failure. Luther is a doctor of theology. His word held a lot of weight. And he basically wrote that, quote, all those who consider themselves secure in their salvation through letters of indulgences will be eternally damned, and so will their teachers. Mic drop. Peace out, Boy Scout. Holy cow. Luther was not known for mincing words. Yikes, it's on. But honestly, Luther writes later, he had no idea what impact the 95 Thesis would be. His initial fear was that indulgences would lead people away from true repentance, and he felt that indulgences would take people away from the power of church, because, you know, if they purchased this, then they felt like they wouldn't have to be in church on Sunday. 
And actually in these 95 Theses, he actually defends the Pope. In fact, later he said, I would have died for the Pope. At this point, Luther has no idea what backdoor deals were made with these indulgences and so how important they were to the church and has no idea what he set into motion. He has no beef with the Catholic Church at this point. He just wants to point out indulgences aren't doing anyone any favors. Well, once Pope Leo X saw a copy of the 95 Thesis, he actually makes it clear he wants this professor to be silenced. That's code for uh, no more. So while a lot of political chaos is going on, Luther's kind of oblivious to it initially, and he just starts to focus on education. How is the clergy being taught? And he found great information by actually looking at scripture in the original Hebrew and Greek. Well, a year later, things really start to heat up. And Luther is asked to defend his newfound theology in this public meeting in Heidelberg, Germany. And a guy by the name of Eck, who is also a theologian, but who strongly disagrees with Luther, um, he begins circulating letters that are bad-mouthing Luther, saying he's inciting a rebellion and that he's a heretic, which is not a good thing to be called in 1518. Well, Luther goes to Heidelberg, he behaves himself, and he actually doesn't even mention indulgences at all. What he talks about in front of this learned audience is his new understanding of salvation and his attack on the way the schools are teaching the clergy. But shortly after this, Luther becomes more bold in his convictions. And then he states publicly that a priest could declare forgiveness of sins in Christ, but has no authority to absolve. In other words, Luther states that the salvation of people is not in the hands or the discretion of an individual, be it a priest or the Pope himself. It's only in Christ. Oh boy. Well, here's what that meant. It meant that the pilgrimages, the special masses for the dead, the indulgences, the shrines, the relics, spiritual exercises, and a whole lot of other stuff that was central to medieval religion was not necessary. Okay, remember Tetzel and his indulgences? Well, he doesn't go away quietly. He starts to fuel the flame that Luther's speaking out against the authority of the Pope. Therefore, this makes Luther a heretic. Okay, Luther's no longer naive. In fact, he sees now that the opposition probably means he's on the right track. He's quoted as saying, I know that whoever wants to bring the word of Christ into the world, much like the apostles, leave behind and renounce everything and expect death at any moment. If any other situation prevailed, it would not be the word of Christ. Rome starts to take notice. The argument is the Pope is infallible. So... Luther, in objecting to indulgences, Luther's working against the Pope, the church, 
and the Holy Spirit. Luther has to now go to Augsburg, where he's going to face a very smart theologian named Kajetan, who's going to represent the Vatican. The discussion finally comes down to the issue of the Pope's authority versus the authority of Scripture. It ends badly. Luther becomes a fugitive. He's taken outside the city walls, through like a hole in the wall, mounted on an old horse, carried miles out of the city, and then secretly taken back to Wittenberg. Now, Luther's not the first to speak out about the Pope. In fact, this has been going on for about 100 years. So he starts to garner support from princes and other theologians. But at this point, he's also got more enemies than friends. But some German leaders pledge military support. One even said they would give him a hundred knights to protect him. His writings and teachings do continue, much to the dismay of Rome. On June 24th, 1520, Luther receives what is called the Exerge Domini. This is also known as the Papal Bull of excommunication. That means it's an official letter from the Pope saying you are kicked out if you don't recant all your false teachings. And not only will you be excommunicated, but all your followers will be also. Luther appeals to what he calls the Christian nobility. So that's all the Christian princes. And in this letter, he says, look, Christian princes, as secular authorities, you have power to legislate reform in your church. That's not up to the pope or the church powers. Well, we start to take notice. You know, all in all, in Luther's life, he wrote over 2,600 letters and books like the Small Catechism, the Large Catechism, the translation of the Bible into his native German language. It was very, very prolific. Well, Luther's public hearing, uh, we call this the Diet of Worms, or Worms, W-O-R-M-S, Worms, Germany. Uh, he is actually greeted by quite a reception. Uh, to quote it, it says, some 2,000 sought to escort him through the city gates. It's kind of a celebrity. Once settled in his quarters, he was visited by the Prince of Hesse, the Prince of Henneberg, and the Prince of Braunschweig. Now, at this point, Luther is really hoping for a debate. Remember, he's super intelligent. He's a very good debater. Remember, he was in law school. So he's ready. He is ready for a debate. But here's what happens. He walks in and the emperor, Charles V, is sitting on his throne. He was not expecting that. Uh, he's flanked by representatives from Rome. Also, there's Spanish troops there in their full uniform, politically powerful from all over the world, seven electors, bishops, princes, territorial princes, representatives of great cities, and a pile of Luther's books. So, there was a question posed to Luther. Had he written these books, 
And was there a part of them he would now choose to recant? Uh-oh. No debate. So Luther's initial response was kind of one of shock. He basically says, yes, these books are mine. I've actually written more. This touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. I beg you, give me more time. He was given one day. As a matter of fact, um, until the next evening. So it's kind of uh, a dramatic stage is set because, of course, they don't have electricity. So um, it's all lit by candlelight. And Martin Luther comes forward and he again tries hard for a debate, but the examiner won't have it and asks him the exact same question. Will you recant? Luther's response was, Unless I can be instructed and convinced with the evidence from the Holy Scripture or with open, clear, and distinct grounds and reasoning, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Then I cannot and will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Luther was sent into exile. There's going to be a bounty on his head. But tune in next time for the rest of the story. Have a blessed day.